Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Indeed, today is the day. It's Friday. Friday, Friday. I don't know. I have to, I feel like the days of the week, every day that ends with the word day should get a little shout out. You know, every single day, you and I have the opportunity to um, greet the day any way we, uh, we want. And so I choose to greet the day with uh, not only with joy, but I'll just go ahead and tell you when my feet hit the floor in the morning, which is actually before morning for a lot of people. It's like crazy early in most people's minds. When my feet hit the floor in the morning, I pretty much have like one consuming thought. And that one consuming thought is, how can I take back some territory that the enemy thinks he owns? Because every square inch, this is very Kypernium, if you're not familiar with uh Abraham Kuyper, that's, you know, he's the every every square inch guy. So you think Bruce Ashford is the every square inch guy, but he stole that from Abraham Kuyper. So anyway, so it's very Kypernium to say every square inch belongs to Jesus. Like there's not, there's not one square inch of anywhere you are going to be today that, that over which Jesus does not claim sovereign authority as Lord, as, 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 as the king of all kings, as the Lord of all lords. I mean, over every square inch, Jesus says, mine. And he doesn't say that as like, you know, because he's greedy. He says it because that's who he is. That is the truth of the matter. Uh, If you haven't read recently, to be reminded of who Jesus is and his supremacy, not only at the cross, but in creation and in final consummation, right? So, you know, reread the, the passage in Colossians where it just talks about who Jesus is at creation. There's not any part of anything that is in the world over which Jesus does not sovereignly lay claim. And so it's all his. It's all his. Now, the enemy thinks he owns it. He thinks he owns some people. He, he thinks he owns some spaces and places. He thinks he owns some uh, realms. But he's wrong. He's wrong. He is a big liar. Um, and so I, when my feet hit the floor in the morning, like I wake up pretty charged up to get after it, like to, to, to seek to reclaim some territory that the enemy thinks is his and to reclaim it on behalf of Christ, like advancing the gospel always in all ways as a kingdom ambassador. That is kind of my, uh, that's my why. If you wonder what my why is, you're not like, why does Carmen do this? What is her motivation? <laughs> my motivation is to be used somehow in some way by God today that every time, every place, every conversation could be viewed as an opportunity to get God back into things. He's, he's there. He's sovereign. He is hovering over the chaos, much like at the beginning of things, right? But we got to invite him in intentionally. We are the ones that walk him in to the room. 
uh, every place you enter today is a place where you have the opportunity by those beautiful feet of the gospel that are down there at the ends of your legs. Like, check out your feet right now. I am wearing flip-flops. Check out your feet right now. It's a little easier for me to check out my feet because I can actually see them. Okay, check out your feet right now and then say to yourself, those are the beautiful feet of the gospel today. That right there at the end of your legs. Beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. So that's you. You you are the beautiful footed person today. The question is, have you, uh, you know, have you armored up? Have you sort of walked through Ephesians 6 and armored up? Um, Have you, you know, have you shod your feet in the way that you are supposed to, to walk the gospel out there into the world that God so loves today? So there's my little uh, charge up message. What, when your feet hit the floor every morning, are they the beautiful feet of the gospel into the world? Mm -hmm. Mine are. We'll be right back uh, with Adam Holtz. He and I are going to talk about, well, you know, we like to talk about media and all things um, happening on the big and the small screen. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, so I love the people who are now sending me pictures of their feet. <laughs> okay, and uh, and Paul Perot reminded me that uh, you know if you're uh, if you're if you're going to do that, you know you don't put your feet in your mouth. Like that's good. That's good. Those are all good reminders. Okay, Adam. Adam, if you missed what we were talking about, beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. Oh, I and, I heard you. I was okay. looking at my feet and thinking. My feet have a lot of adjectives that one could use to describe them, but beautiful uh, ain't on the list. Beautiful, beautiful. You are a bringer of good news, and so beautiful are no, your feet, my friend. There you go. Metaphoric, metaphorically speaking, I will agree with you. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so not beautiful this week <clears throat> in, in terms of the actual definition of the word. Um, not beautiful this week were the MTV Video Music Awards. Oh, man. In fact, you know, in fact I would say contrary to... What was good, beautiful, and true at every point? No, that it just was. It was sort of a staggering experience, and it's hard to even know where to start. I didn't watch the entire broadcast. I watched about an hour. I of told it. people it would sear their eyeballs, and that they should not watch it. It was that bad. No, and and it was sort of a. You know, you might think I was watching it for my job, but we still actually sort of channel surf sometimes, which I know is an antiquated thing to do and, and came upon it and watched it. And uh, I will just say that there is, our culture is just upside down in so many ways. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to even talk about what some of what was aired in a a sanitized way. And it's difficult even to do that. Uh, well, one know. of the ways that yeah, one of the ways we approached it earlier in the week, because um, we did unpack this a little bit with Peter Kapsner the other day, we were just yeah. really talking about the the way in which um, we now platform visually and uh, and yes. through the use of words and music, we we now platform things that we would not have thought culturally appropriate just a very short time ago, and so not very things, long ago. yeah, in terms of you know what what we are willing to watch people not wear and watch them do and listen to them say in a place where we are ultimately paying for that because we're, you know, there's advertising involved. And so um, we would not have been consumers as a culture who would have willingly 
um, consumed that not very long ago. And so we, we really were talking about sort of the changing appetite and how the appetite of the American public has really, well, it's, I don't know if grossified is a word, but it's been grossified. Yeah. Well, and the only good news here, if, if I can look for a silver lining, is that it was the lowest ratings ever for yeah. MTV. And so I think it was like 1.9 million viewers. And uh, that's not very many by by any measure, any measure. And so on one hand, you can say, you know, MTV still has some sliver of the zeitgeist, but they are not the cultural influence that that you know this network was 20 or 30 years ago. And frankly, not that many people are really interested in what they're selling. And I think it also speaks to just the total fragmentation of the music industry that for the most part, with very, very rare exceptions, you know, once upon a time, a number one album would sell a million copies. And now if it gets a hundred thousand, you know, in sales, which sales is now physical sales plus album equivalents of streams, that's a huge number. And so culturally, there are so many options for people that people aren't listening to. They're probably listening to just as much music, but with the internet now, you know, odds are your kids are listening to people that you've never heard of before because that's kind of the cool thing to do. Why would I want to listen to anybody that somebody's heard of before? So, um, you know, again, back to the good news is I think that there's a there, MTV has a much smaller cultural platform than they once did. Okay, so when Adam and I return, um, we're going to talk about some comments that Phil Vischer uh, has made. Phil Vischer, you recognize from Veggie Tales. He's also um, a podcaster, and he ha- he hosts a show called the Mister Phil Show on Right Now Media. Um, I would say that in terms of uh, of Christian families, Phil Vischer is a guy who we trust, and he has recently said some some things in relationship to. Christian filmmakers having to start addressing LGBT issues and same-sex relationships from a biblical perspective because kids are already seeing those storylines in secular movies and television shows. So Adam and I are going to talk about that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So I am talking to Focus on the Family's Adam Holtz uh, at Plugged In. You can check it out at PluggedIn.com. Um, Adam, Adventures in Odyssey is just a great franchise. I mean, I don't know. It's a franchise. No, it's a product. Yeah. I don't know. Product. Yeah, what what do we call franchise. that? Okay. Oh, Focus I, I on the Family. And yeah. it's and you know and it's geared toward kids like I don't know eight to twelve. I got kids who still love to listen to it, and they're oh, beyond yeah. that age and stage of life. But Adventures in Odyssey, you know, sort of targeted the older elementary crowd, and so Veggie Tales really targets the pre preschool. I mean, you know, like toddler preschool, very early elementary age crowd. Both of these franchises are old by media standards. Right? Would that be fair to say? I mean, they're they're Oh, you know, yeah. we could on one level we could say that's just because they have such great staying power. On another level, we could say it's just because there's just nothing else out there that's been introduced in the last twenty years that's as good content wise, as content rich as Veggie Tales uh, for little kids and Odyssey for little <coughs> kids. And so when Phil Vischer says, you know, hey, the reason, you know, uh, to say that, hey, Veggie Tales, you know, has the staying power, you know, he's like that's not necessarily that good. That that actually means that we're not actually investing in the production of material for this age group in terms of uh, 
the media industry. Yeah, so when he no, when, when he talk, so he's he's speaking to the the challenge that he knows he faces as a product developer um, that he is going to have to begin addressing um, LGBTQ characters and storylines, and he's going to have to do so under pressure from an industry that has just wholesale moved that direction. So let's just talk about that. Yeah, you know, I think you and I have talked before that in some ways, um, for a long time, we t- we talked about having to have the talk with our kids. And now we have to have the talk part two, because television and movie programming, it's the rare television show these days that doesn't have an explicitly LGBTQ character. And increasingly, that is true with children's programming as well. You know, whether we're talking about Sesame Street or Arthur or My Little Pony, I mean, you can just go down the list of shows that have added, you know, LGBTQ characters to programming that targets kids. And so the culture has gotten to the point where they really have equivocated this. Um, in terms of seeing it as a civil rights issue. And there's, you know, a sense of what they're doing is right and good in elevating uh, the culture's understanding of of the homosexuality issue. And so I think it's not when you talk to your kids about it, or excuse me, if you talk to your kids about it, it's when. You have to. And I, I think I shared the story that we were watching Ellen's Game of Games a while back, which is not a kid's show, but certainly has a wacky, you know, silly component to it. And my kids love it because, you know, they do dump slime on people. It's like you can't do that on television from back in the day if you're a certain age. And they had two uh, two women who announced they had just gotten engaged. And that was a, a teachable moment because my eight-year-old asked about it. But it's not just that kind of stuff. It's It's everything. And so... We as parents have to be having conversations, not just that end with homosexuality is not good, but what is God's theological design for sexuality? Because if our kids don't have an understanding of why uh, we believe homosexuality is not the way God designed things to be, they're absolutely going to get swept along by the tide here. Um, and, and that's no small thing because it's a pretty sophisticated conversation, but I think it's one that our culture is forcing us to have perhaps a lot sooner than we would be comfortable having it. Well, we're never going to be comfortable having it. So we're going to have no, to, well, that's true. We're like, that's right. Totally like true. we have to get comfortable having this most uncomfortable conversation. And so Adam, the immediate, the immediate pushback that I get, um, and you know, I, I, I will get it on, I will get it via the text line here in just a minute from at least one person. The immediate pushback that I'm going to get is, you know, why is anybody even letting their kids watch any of that? Like, why are you even allowing your children to be exposed to any of that? And Phil Vischer actually addresses that issue. He's like, look, we cannot we cannot be raising our kids in two different worlds. We cannot be raising our kids as if there is this, um, uh, you know, this this sacred space of church and the church people and what the church people, uh, the world the church people are living in. And then everybody else, because the kids are going to live in the world. We have to train them how to live in the world and not be of it. And the challenge is we don't we don't have a lot of parents who know how to live in the world and not be of it. We got a lot of parents who've just like become worldly. Yeah, no, that's true. And and I think even if you have very stringent standards with regard to your media consumption in your home and, and if you do, 
you know, I say God bless you because it, it's hard to do that in today's day and age. Um, but your kids are going to go. It's I don't know. I think 30 or 40 years ago, we might they're have been gonna under the, we can, be under the illusion. They're going to see it. They're going to see it. No, they're, they are going to see it. But what yeah. I was going to say is that 30 or 40 years ago, we had the illusion we could raise kids in a hermetically sealed environment. It wasn't even true then, and it's certainly not true now. So I, you know, I think that our philosophy at Plugged In is you need to be on sort of a, um, a continuum where certainly when they're young, you protect them from everything and you don't let them see it. But as they get into their tween and especially into their middle teen years, you need to be having a conversation that equips them to be able to think biblically and critically about the media that's coming at them from every direction. Because even if it's not in your house, it's everywhere else. And um, that may sound like, oh, you're just capitulating to the culture. I'm like, well, no, I'm not capitulating to the culture. All of their friends have smartphones. You do not have the ability to control what they see or, or don't see, but you do have the ability to control talking about that ahead of time so that you know that they're equipped to not be surprised or shocked or you know in the dark about what their friends are engaging with. Right. Uh, I think that the exposure conversation is one that Christian parents have to be equipped to to engage in. Um, how are we going to protect them as best we can, but how are we going to prepare them effectively for the realities of the world in which yes. they are going to live? They are going They're to live going in there. the world. Going the question there. is, Absolutely. yeah, I think the question is, is my kid going to be both in the world and of it, or am I going to not only through my own life demonstrate what it looks like to be in the world and not of it, but am I going to equip them to be a person who um, is so in love with Jesus that they are more interested in being in the center of God's will than they are at living, you know, right out there at the periphery of the edge of whether or not this is okay. Like that's, yeah. that for me is kind of the tactic that I take. Like, you know, when, when kids start asking, well, is this okay? Or is that okay? Is this across the boundary or the border? Is, you know, this language or this, I'll say, okay, no, you know, if we're looking at Jesus who is, you know, right in the middle of God's will and we are wanting right. to be focused on him, moving toward him with him, you know, how comfortable is Jesus with that? Like, right? Because if I'm with Jesus and Jesus is not comfortable with that, then then I'm not, I, I can't do that. That's because right. I'm a Jesus girl. Like, that's my, you know, that's, I'm his. Right. This is not, I don't get to reserve parts of, parts of my life or parts of my ideology for myself. All right. So, right. Um, all right. Uh, one quick question before we let you go. Do, Paul, do I have one minute or not? Am I out of time? Real quick. <laughs> why do they call trailers trailers and not previews? A this is question. so interesting. I looked it up. Back in the day, and back in the day, being in the early nineteen or early twentieth century, um, there were you paid your money to go to the theater, and you could sit there all day long and watch whatever you wanted. And so, at some point early on, between the features, they came up with the idea that they could run previews for things coming soon. And it was also easier to attach it some for some reason to the end of the film than it was to put it on the beginning. Uh, and so what we know is trailers really did trail the main feature originally, briefly. Now that, that actually did, it didn't happen for very long, but long enough to establish this idea of trailers 
and it has stuck since you know. Okay, well, for clearly, inquir- years. clearly, inquiring minds want to know. So there you go. There's our little uh, encouragement of what we need to blog about on pluggedin.com. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Hey, we'll talk to you next week. Adam Holtz from Plugged In. You guys check out what he's writing at pluggedin.com. We'll be right back. Okay, next up, I'm going to talk with Bill Federer from This American Moment about This American Minute about Labor Day. What is it? When did it start? Why do we do it? Labor Day up next on Mornings with the Garden. The scars we receive from bullies never fade, even as adults. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I'm convinced that the escalating conflicts with bullies will never end until parents step in and model what's right. And right now, I'd like to pray for us all as we guide our teens. Father, show us how to help our kids. Teach us to intervene. We want to walk beside them if they're being bullied, and we want to rebuke them if they dare offend others. Sarcasm and biting criticism are never a part of your character. It's never your will that we would willfully offend or hurt the innocent. So help us become models of your mercy, love, and grace. Father, empower us to engage our kids as never before. Amen. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. So as we lead up to Labor Day weekend, I'm excited to be joined by Bill Federer. You know him from AmericanMinute.com. And wow, just all of the books that he has written. You can follow him on Facebook at William J. Federer. Bill, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. It's great to be with you. So I thought it would be fun to talk with you today about the history of Labor Day. So that's my setup. What's the history of Labor Day? Well, when America was founded, most of the people were... Uh, farmers or uh, apprentice at cobbler shops or bakeries or upholsters. Then the Industrial Revolution starts in the early 1900s. A guy named James Watt invented the steam engine uh, in mining in England, but then it turned into steam for factories and steam for boats and steam for railroads. And uh, this began to come across. And um, the situation in America was uh, because it was mostly agricultural in the South, Uh, They put tariffs on goods coming from Europe that were manufactured at the textile factories in London and so forth. And so they made foreign goods more expensive so that people would buy stuff made in America, but it was made in north of of the states. And so the southern states, they either had to buy more expensive stuff from the north or buy more expensive stuff from Europe because of these tariffs. That animosity actually led up to the Civil War. And after the war, the North won and passed all kinds of tariffs, and it made all the foreign goods so expensive. Everybody bought American, which was great. It caused these factories to explode in growth, and they created textiles and cloth and dishes and farm tools and iron and bridges and skyscrapers and steamboats and mining uh, tools and so forth. We We saw the fastest rise in the standard of living in world history. And women were freed from weaving thread on a spindle and sewing clothes. You could buy a whole bolt of cloth for really cheap. Anyway, uh, this is all great. Uh, immigrants began to come to America, and they worked in the factories in the north. Uh, and one of the ideal examples was the Pullman Railroad Car Company in Chicago. George Pullman set up a little village for his workers to live in. All right, right next to the factory, and uh, he paid the people in company script. 
not dollar bills, but company script. And it was redeemable at the company store. And that the, the rent for your little village house was taken out of your paycheck. And it was this little utopian socialist ideal community until there was an economic crisis in around 1894. And the orders for Pullman railroad cars fell off and the company was struggling to stay alive. And so they had to cut wages, lay off employees. Um, uh, the rents, though, stayed the same, and the grocery costs stayed the same. And at this time, you had the communist uh, Marxist uh, thought spreading in Europe. Karl Marx, uh, his thoughts came along with some of these German immigrants, and so now they're in America. And so now you have these communist socialist agitators, and they don't really see the big picture that there's an economic downturn. They just see that they're getting paid less and people are laid off work. And so they began to riot. And they began to burn railroad cars and burn factories. Eugene Debs is the agitator in 1894. And so it becomes a national event when the railroad strike happens and the mail is not being delivered. So the federal government is not supposed to step in unless it has something to do with interstate business. And since the mail was being shipped on railroad cars across state lines. Anyway, so now it's a national thing. Now, uh, Grover Cleveland is the president. He's running for re-election, and he wants to appease the labor movement, and so he passes Labor Day. So that's <laughs> the origin of Labor Day. Now, originally, the workers wanted it on May 1st because that would line up with the International Workers' Day that the socialists and communists were doing all around the country where they were overthrowing the czar and overthrowing governments. And, uh, and so Grover Cleveland said, no, we're going to have a Labor Day, but it's not going to be May 1st. It's going to be September 1st. Uh, and so and then in the, the three day weekend rule, it turned into the first Monday in um, uh, September. So uh, May 1st, because it was the International Workers Day, uh, you had a riot in 1886 in Chicago. Uh, some of those anarchists uh, blew up a pipe bomb, killed a bunch of people, including policemen. And so they uh, later put up a statue to honor the policemen that were killed in this Chicago Haymarket riot. Uh, the statue was there, <clears throat> excuse me, up until 1969. And you had a bunch of new anarchists led by Bill Ayers of the Weather Underground. And they, again, blew up this statue and had more riots. They rebuilt the statue. He blew it up again in 1970. Most people know Bill Ayers because he helped launch the political career of somebody else in Chicago named Barack Obama. Anyway, so you began to see the roots of Labor Day It was to appease these riots. Now, Grover Cleveland lost the election. He did not get reelected. And Eugene Debs, the organizer of all this agitation, got thrown in federal prison. So um, anyway, uh, that's the, uh, the, the quick history of Labor Day. So, Bill, when we when we think about these things, I just I want our listeners to be sure that they hear all of the contemporary themes uh, that you are touching on there that actually are a part of, uh, you know, weaving together the history of why we even have Labor Day. And we're going to talk after the break about why we have Labor Day today and maybe, you know, in these times that have changed, uh, maybe the, the threads that you see as well. Um, but I want I want to be sure that as we go to the break, you know, friends, you heard about tariffs and you heard about immigrants and you heard about uh, the transition of uh, of a culture and an economy from that which was mostly agrarian to that which was 
uh, vastly industrial. We need to talk about the the transitions that have taken place since then um, and what you're going to do with your Labor Day and who you're going to honor and what it really means to to pause and consider the work that we uh, have been given for our hands to do and what it means for all of that to be done as unto the Lord. So we're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with Bill Federer. You can check out what he's doing at AmericanMinute.com. We'll be right back. Now is the time to seize the day. Now is the time to seize the day. Answer the call and Continuing my conversation with Bill Federer, you can find him on Facebook at William J. Federer. You can also find him at AmericanMinute.com. He is really one of the greatest contemporary like American historians. He tells the stories of American history in such a way that we can not only go back and experience it, but it's not just dates and names and places. It's actually sort of history brought to life again so that we can um, we can know from whence we came, and knowing from whence we came is important in knowing who we are today and the choices that we make as a nation. So, Bill, again, uh, thank you for joining us here on Mornings with Carmen. Let's talk about how times have changed since that first Labor Day, uh, you know, more than, gosh, I don't know, my math is so bad, but like like 120 years ago or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah 18, uh, 1894. All right. Yeah. See, see, bad math. Don't make me do that math. Okay. So, but since then, times have changed. Let's talk, let's talk about that. And let's talk about um, maybe the poll threads that you see today. Right. So good things. Uh, The labor movement increased the salaries for workers. It created the uh, eight hour day, the 40 hour week. It's raised minimum wage. It improved working conditions for the factory workers and gave more benefits to them. The labor movement was the number one anti-immigrant movement in America. What do I mean? Uh, They didn't want immigrants coming in because they would work really cheap and it would undercut their wages. And so the labor movement was anti-immigrant. And so there were improvements in these working conditions and the living conditions. Um, but something that was that happened that could, in a sense, be considered negative. All these improvements increased the cost of labor. And so after World War II, America rebuilt Germany and Japan with brand new equipment, and they were producing stuff cheaper than we could produce it, and they were gaining a larger percentage of the global market, and we were losing business and losing jobs. And so this is called uh, the the Americans uh, saw businesses move overseas with their factories. It's called outsourcing. And uh, so overseas, they could produce stuff cheaper and then lower the tariffs and bring it all back into America. And then more companies would move overseas and more and more and more until pretty soon we were disassembling our manufacturing base in America and union jobs dropped off by 50 percent to just about 12 percent of the workforce now today. Also, it gave birth to automation. And so you began to see. Uh, in order to bring the cost of items down, factories would automate. And so this would, again, uh, take away jobs. And so if you were to list like fingers on a hand, higher wages, increased taxes, expensive lawsuits against businesses, burdensome regulations and environmental restrictions, uh, these all made doing business in America more expensive. And on top of that, you have something called crony capitalism. This is where the politicians 
will give favors to certain businesses that support their reelection <laughs> and their political agendas. So uh, we saw this recently where, you know, ExxonMobil or some of these big companies that supported the previous president, they got uh, o- Obamacare waivers. They didn't have to comply. But other companies that didn't support it, they did have to comply, like, uh, you know, the Hobby Lobby and so forth. And, and so all this uh, made doing business in America more expensive, contributed to the outsourcing. And, uh, and then, obviously, we're lowering jobs. So you squeeze the sponge, the water goes out. To make this personal, if you were driving down the street and gas on your side was $4.50 a gallon, but on the other side of the street, it's $2 a, a gallon. Question, would you make a left turn and go to the other side of the street to get the, the gas that's cheaper? Well, I, will yeah. drive, I will drive several miles to get to the exit where I know that right now gas is two twenty one. Right. And that's a perfect example. And so that's the same thought process that goes through these businesses. They're in business to be in business, to make money. And if they can make money by moving their jobs overseas, guess what? That's where it's going to go. So how do we turn this around? Easy. You make it more profitable for their factory to be located here than there. And so you have to give incentives. You have to lower taxes on the businesses and uh, allow them to uh, have some lawsuit protection and give them a break on some of the regulations, maybe even hire, uh, dangle a financial incentive that if they treat the environment better, they get a tax break rather than punishing them. And, and so if you can draw the businesses back, the jobs come back and then the unemployment goes down and, and lots of good things happen. Anyway, so, so uh, go ahead. Well, that's OK. I want to I want to ask a question Because I feel like you are able to bring all of this to bear on the conversations that we have in the culture today. Um, So when I let's say I see a presidential candidate who, you know, has a workplace democracy plan, wants to expand labor rights, wants to at least double union membership or make it possible for everybody to join a union. I don't even know what that means. Um, But that also like I there's in my heart of hearts like, right, I want people to have the dignity of who they are. I want them to be able to work in a place where they are respected as a human being and where they're not exploited. Um, So I want that, but I don't feel like I want all of the byproducts that you are now talking about um, in terms of uh, the, the stresses that that will then put on American companies in such a way that they will find a way to do business somewhere else. Right. And so, again, there's two levels. The unions on the lower level, it's to help the workers and better their condition and their wages and so forth. On the higher level, you have leadership that tends to contribute to political parties that want to take away guns, want to push pro-abortion, want to push the transgendered agenda. And so you have the situation where the worker may hold traditional values, but yet they're paying dues to support a leadership that supports these left type values. And so there's this movement to say, we don't want to be forced to pay these dues. And so you have another movement that says, um, you know, hey, we want to have, you know, the representatives to protect us on our job, but we don't want to contribute to this uh, political agenda that's, you know, pro-abortion and so forth. Right. That's really hard for people today to navigate all of that. Well, and then on top of it, you have political groups that want to take advantage of disunity. What do I mean? Mm. Uh, You have uh, all the way back to Machiavelli and Karl Marx. uh, And it's this idea that how do you overthrow a country? Uh, As long as it's patriotic and everybody's unified, uh, it's really hard. But if you can break the people into smaller groups and then pit the groups against each other to commit domestic unrest 
and eventually riots and insecurity for life and property uh, and random killings, then everybody will begin to say, we need the government to step in to restore order. And the government comes in and takes away your Second Amendment rights, takes away your freedom of speech rights so that you can't say something that might offend somebody so they riot, takes away all these rights. And yeah, they, they bring restore order, but when the dust settles, you've transitioned your form of government from the people ruling themselves from the bottom up to the government ruling from the top down. And so this agitation is what is the hallmark of the way the communists have taken over countries. They come in, find groups with grievances, and stir them up to riot. Uh, one of the gentlemen that's a, a famous writer is uh, David Horowitz, and he was a, a communist until he left that ideology. He says, the issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution. So it's really not about Confederate flags and Pledge of Allegiance and statues and hands up, don't shoot. Those are uh, the, the lower level things uh, to bring about disunity. The issue is never really the issue. The issue is always the revolution. The people that think it's the issue, Lenin called useless idiots. They think, they think it really has something to do with these minor things. No, the ult ultimate goal is to bring disunity into the country so that there's insecurity for life and property, so everybody will beg the government to come in and restore order. The government does, takes away all your rights and your freedoms, and you've transitioned the country to a totalitarian top-down form of government. 45 countries fell to communism this way. And they would organize the proletariat against the bourgeois, the working class against the business owners. They'd organize the blacks against the whites, the Christians against the, the, the Muslims, the Catholics against the Protestants, the Hutus against the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. I mean, this is a class study. So during the colonial era, there were uh, the blacks in Congo and Rwanda all got along. But the colonialist powers began to measure them and say, you're a Hutu, you're a Tutsi, and created races and then pitted them against each other. And then when it became the bloodshed, they had an excuse to come in to quote unquote restore order, but they took over. This is how the Bill, British took over India. Uh, your, uh, your breadth and depth of knowledge, not only related to American history, but the history of what's going on culturally uh, around the world. It's just so, it's so refreshing and we really appreciate it. Um, you and I are going to have to literally leave it right there. I appreciate that you you elevated the uh, or reference the David Horowitz quote. One of the things that I frequently say and absolutely believe is that the issue is never the issue. The issue is always God. The issue is always God. And so we, uh, you and I will leave people to think about that. Thank you so much, uh, Bill Federer. You guys can find him at AmericanMinute.com and on Facebook, William J. Federer. You're listening to Morning for Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, what a fun Friday. Uh, thank you so much for taking me along uh, on the ride this morning, wherever it is that you are going uh, on your walk of faith out into the world that God so loves. Uh, so thank you. Um, thank you so much. All right. So circling back around to where we started out uh, today, just the simple observation that life is difficult and that we live in the meantime, in the midst of the already and the not yet between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. And that means that you and I, um, it's just not going to be easy. Like, I, I don't... There's no way to gloss over the reality that life is difficult. And if anyone has led you to believe otherwise, then you have been misled. And so one of the things that I want us to get better at is recognizing the lies that people tell us, um, because that's really the enemy at work on our confidence in terms of, of who we know Christ to be and the truthfulness and trustworthiness of our Father who is in heaven. So 
You and I are um, are children of the Father, but there is a Father of lies out there, and He is um, He is seeking to not only influence us but rob us of our joy. So again, today, do not let the enemy rob you of your joy. Recognize the thief for who he is, and just flat out tell him, uh, flat out tell him to he can't have your joy today. He can't have your joy today. You are content in Christ, who is your peace. Let that uh, let that anchor hold. Have a great weekend, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.